Welcome to Sword and Staff. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Robinson, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Richie Brock. And on today's episode, Richie and I are going to be going back to our roots a little bit with this Chinwag edition. We're going to be talking about some films and some series that are, uh, that are out there that's been released. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about Missing 411, um, which is really in Richie's wheelhouse. He's been paying attention to Missing 411 for a long time. I've only watched very, very little of it, but kind of ties into some of the work that we've been doing with some uh, weird West Virginia stuff. Um, and then after that, we're going to talk about Will of Time, uh, Amazon's new series that they just released this past Friday. Kind of tie that into Amazon's upcoming Lord of the Rings series. And then we'll talk about Shang-Chi, one of the newer Marvel movies. I got to watch that last week and some interesting stuff there. And that'll lead us to a conversation on Cherubim, uh, Guardian Lines, and Sphinx. Uh, I don't know if it's if the plural is Sphinx or Sphinxes. I don't, I don't know how that works. No clue. Uh, I don't have an Egyptian around to, to ask. Um, but, yeah, we'll talk about that and uh, just should be an interesting conversation, I think, whenever we dive into some of the stuff. We may talk about some other stuff at the end of it. I don't know. We'll see how much time we've got whenever we, we get to that. If we're rolling it about an hour, we'd probably just wrap it up there with the cherubim and stuff. And maybe I'll save these other stuff for another chinwag edition another time. But but we'll see it. But, Richie, how are you feeling about today's episode, pal? We've got Ward Heine in-house today. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's been on video already. I'm sure that he probably has. He just now walked through here. So if you guys see a guy with a uh, camera on video, oh, he's coming back in the shot. There you go. Hey, Ward. Ward is in town today. We had a Friendsgiving today here at Sword and Staff HQ. And, uh, yeah, we've just been hanging out all morning, doing some talking, doing some uh, investigation, some of that kind of stuff into some upcoming trips that we've got planned out. And, um, yeah, it's just been a fun morning. How are you feeling about today's stuff? Um, I'm excited for the episode. Sort yeah. of, kind of, a little unprepared today. Like yeah. normally, we have an outline, so just kind of going with it. That's not really my strong suit. Yeah, Richie's Richie has to have an outline in front of him, and I've got to the point where, like, in my preaching and stuff, I don't even use outlines anymore. So it's just I like I'm by nature, uh, like in my mind, things are organized, so I don't yeah. have to even write them down on paper. Richie's Richie, like, however, has Richie does not how, have that filing Richie, system. Richie, however, does not have that filing system in his head like I do. So he he needs it. So we've got a little bit of an outline. I've told him the things that we'd be talking about, but uh, that's about it. So yep. so. Uh, Work with us today, right? We got a lot going on, and so also we want to start off by saying Happy Thanksgiving. You guys are probably going to hear this on Thanksgiving. I think that's when it's going to release, right? right. Yeah. Thursday, yeah, that's Thanksgiving. So if you guys are listening, uh, Happy Thanksgiving from Sword and Staff to you. <laughs> we hope that it's a it's a good one wherever you're at. So, all right, Richie. Well, to start us off, we're going to talk about missing four one one, and so. I'll just kind of play the part of somebody who doesn't really know what Missing 411 is. I know what it is a little bit. I've watched a little bit of Missing 411, The Hunted. Um, but go ahead and, and tell people about Missing 411 and what exactly that is. Well, Missing 411 is a research project from uh, a guy named Dave Pilates, and he gets into investigating some missing, force, missing person reports from national parks and other places around the country, even around the world even. And... A lot of his research really goes into paranormal elements that tie into these missing persons, persons cases. Well, that's really interesting. Okay, so there's it's a, so it's really zeroing in on missing persons stories, and some of them even tie into super have supernatural elements, that kind of stuff. Right. right. Okay. Good deal. 
Um, yeah, some of the, I haven't got into into it deep enough to know a ton about it, but what little bit of it I watched, I, I didn't get into any of the supernatural element stuff. But whenever I was watching the Hunted uh, Missing Four One One episode, it was mainly I, I think I watched like the first the first case in it where like an older man just disappears and they just never find him. Yeah. Um, so so what 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 is it then that you find interesting about this work? Because like to the to the normal listener, it just may sound like oh, it's a, about missing persons. But what do you personally find so interesting about that? And, and is there a certain way that that maybe ties into some of the work that we're doing? Um, I first found out about this project when about the same time I came across Sellier, when we were doing deep diving into that kind of research. Yeah, and I saw his references to. Um, these abductions by paranormal means, even like Bigfoot reports and things. Yeah. So a lot of it tied into the high strangeness we were looking at in Appalachia. And when you dig into his work, even the case, a lot of the cases in his books, even in the documentaries, are cases here in Appalachia. So this yeah. is definitely a hot, hot spot for sure. Okay. So um, if I'm not mistaken, whenever we were watching Hellier, wasn't there a tie-in with some of these missing person cases and it tying in with some of the stuff that they were looking at even, like maybe with like uh, caves yeah, and... like the creatures in the caves, yeah. Yeah, right, that kind of thing. That's pretty wild, right? Like that's 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 wild. Yeah. But, but I, I thought so. Okay. All right. So I even meant to bring it up, and I think we touched on it a little bit in the Bigfoot episode we did for patrons that yeah. this, this research was sort of ties into that. I know Dave Plate is, is a believer in Sasquatch and yeah. Bigfoot, and he actually likens some of the reports of uh, shadow figures, um, tall, hairy creature sightings that accompany some of these things yeah. as a possible culprit for the abductions. That's really interesting. Um, so you have a particular case you were wanting to talk about today as well, right? Right. That happens in West Virginia, and that is the case of Victor... Victor Shoemaker. Victor Shoemaker. So go ahead and, and maybe fill people in on that case and, and how that ties in. So it, this is... this. I'll, well, I'll go ahead and make that connection. So this happens in Appalachia. Right. Not only in Appalachia, but in West Virginia, where we're at. It happens <clears> in the eastern panhandle in a place called Kirby, West Virginia, which is about four hours, five hours from here, depending on whenever uh, what route you're taking. But go ahead and tell people about that story and what happened there. Well, Victor Shoemaker was a five-year-old boy that went missing in Kirby of May in May of 1994. Um, Kirby sits near uh, Short Mountain, which in itself has a history of UFO sightings. Hmm. So it already, right off the bat, you see a paranormal connection to the area. Yeah. And uh, him and two of his older cousins were sort of playing out back of their grandfather's mobile home they had there. Mm-hmm. They went into the woods, and the the older cousins remember... Uh, Victor complaining that he was hungry, so he wanted to go back to the to the house. Right. So he, he he turned and went back down the path, and that was the last they saw of him. And he never made it back home. Okay. So if if uh, if I remember correctly, you're telling me a little bit about this story before we come on, because I I had never heard about this story. So apparently this shows up in Dave Pilate's Missing 411. It's one of the cases that he covers. Um, but go ahead. There were some supernatural elements about this right. case as, right, as well. So go ahead and tell us about some of those. So we've got this We've got this boy. He's with his cousins. They're going out into the woods. There's been UFO sightings at this place. So already an and interesting— And already even Short, uh, Short Mountain there sits in, right, in one of the biggest uh, Bigfoot hotspots 
on the East Coast. Okay, so we've got high strangeness going Definitely. on here, right? Okay, so tell them about what happens from there, right? He's wanting to go back. He's hungry, but that's not what happens. So he ends up missing. Let's let's dive into that a little bit. Well, when the police uh, interview the cousins, mm-hmm. they're in a state of panic. So they're uh, <clears throat> they tell conflicting stories at first. Yeah. And they say it's because they don't want to get in trouble for what's happened. Like, they even mention a shadowy figure that sort of happens upon the trail yeah. and grabs the boy and takes off with him. And they, I know they were interviewed by police, the psychologist done examinations on them, and they all passed their polygraph tests. Wow. And the, they brought in bloodhounds, and the bloodhounds, uh, in their search for the boy, would uh, mark ascent in the mm. air but not on the ground so th- it indicated that he was being carried by somebody so, so that so it seems like that whenever the bloodhounds come in what th- what they're doing aligns with the stories that the boys have told which also has been confirmed by polygraph right right so they're saying that some weird shadowy figure picks him up and carries him off and then whenever the bloodhound comes in the scent seems to be in the air right. rather than on the ground. <clears throat> and then it takes him to like a field. They go to like a field. Yeah. And then uh, it was the thought of the, it was the thought of the searchers that in the police that there was somebody, I know earlier in the day there was a, I think it was a blue truck that was seen in the area. Yeah. So they thought they get that, whoever that person was kidnapped had something him or something. But um, their thinking wasn't anything paranormal. They thought somebody happened upon the kids, tried to grab one of them and just took off. Yeah. But when the bloodhounds get into the middle of this field, they just stop. And one of the searchers noted that the bloodhounds just turned their heads straight to the sky and just pointed their nose that way. That's that's fascinating. So in your estimation, if you're the one on this case, what do you think this is? Or is there a precedent for things like shadow figures doing this type of thing? Or is it do you think it relates to to Sasquatch stuff, Bigfoot type sightings? Like what, what do you think? I mean, even if even in like uh, Celtic fairy culture and things like that, you look far enough, and they're it's notori- notorious for missing persons. I mean, that's one of the the staples of uh, fae phenomena. If right. you stumble into their territory, you get abducted. That's right. Yeah, I, I remember whenever we were talking about uh, cryptids during the cryptids episode, we were talking about fairies. Some just on the side, outside of the episode, that seemed to have been a big thing that you stumble into fairy territory, and then you end up missing, right? And so it seems like a similar phenomenon here as well, right, um, with this. Um, maybe the way that it's manifesting itself isn't quite the same, but um, it's manifesting itself as a shadowy type figure, So, but very, very similar phenomenon. Right. So really interesting. Um, I mean, even Sasquatch itself, we talked about that being uh, an elemental spirit tied to the right. element of Earth. So... The very same kind of fey references you see in Celtic cultures cross over here. Yeah, so you think that looking at it from the outside in, that seems to be what's going on here. Right. Type of elemental spirit type thing. Perhaps in different cultures it presents itself as a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot, and then uh, in other cultures it presents itself as a Yeti, but here in this particular case it's manifested as a shadow figure kind of deal. Right. That's interesting, really interesting. All right, guys, so if you want more on that case, uh, go and check out Dave Pallady's Missing 411. Richie, you got anything else you want to comment on with that case? Um, not right off the bat. I know I'm planning on dropping a, a short blog post for a patron 
kind of go over the facts of this later Sweet. today. Sweet. That's awesome. Well, guys, if you're pa- on Patreon, uh, you need to check that out. Richie's going to be dropping that at some point here today or this week. And, yeah, uh, stay tuned for that. Also, I didn't even give I didn't even give the Patreon. <laughs> I just remember, just that's how chin wags work. Though there is no outline for chin wags. So, but anyway, if you guys are interested in that, head on over to patreoncom order. You can get what Richie's talking about for just five dollars a month. Get the short sword and staff uncut. Whenever you do that, you also get episodes delivered to you faster. Right, this episode will drop today, which we're recording on Tuesday. Everywhere else, we'll give it on Thanksgiving, right, on Thursday. So you get episodes faster. You also get exclusive content like what Richie's going to drop on there with the Dave Pilates case here, uh, the Victor Shoemaker case, and you also get a bunch of other exclusive content that nobody else gets. So uh, you get the uncut editions as well with, with at least 30 extra minutes of bonus content. So, All right, so now um, we'll talk about Wheel of Time. So, Richie, you got to see a little bit of Wheel of Time today. I saw a little bit today, yeah. You got to see a little bit of it. We watched a little bit of it before we got on today. I'm a few. I think there's three episodes now, so I'm a couple episodes in. So I'm not going to go too in depth on it. But I feel like we're going back to our roots here because we used to talk about other shows and stuff yeah, like Loki yeah. and you know all that kind of stuff. So it kind of feels like we're going back to our old chinwag roots. Um, I'm not going to comment on it too much because it's not finished yet. But from what I understand, season one of Will of Time is really going to get to about halfway into um, the first Will of Time book which is, uh, it's a long book. It's called The Eye of the World. I I was going to bring it with me today and show it on camera, but I forgot it. Um, But anyway, uh, so I watched it, and I can't remember how many episodes are going to be in the first season, but I'm a couple couple in, still yet got to watch the third one. But um, my first thought, and you can chime in on this, was visually the show is stunning. Oh yeah, I thought that it was yep, right off the bat. Yeah, right off the bat. Um, so being a Tolkien fan and a Tolkien nerd, it's probably visually one of the closest things that I've seen to Middle Earth. I would say, like world build. Like, I mean, if you've read Will of Time and, and are familiar with Robert Jordan and his work, Robert Jordan is a big time Tolkien fan and was influenced by Tolkien. And a lot of the stuff that he takes for Will of Time is right out of Tolkien. Um, and so there's a purposeful uh, Middle Earth type aura and feeling to it anyway. But I think that uh, Amazon uh, nailed the look to it. Like, I mean, it looks, it's stunning. Like the, the landscapes are beautiful. Um, the architecture of the world, right, is very, very nice and, and like looks very European. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's which is interesting uh, for various reasons, but anyway, um, looks really nice. Uh, so that's one of the positives that I've seen so far. Um, another another part too that I saw is the, the graphics and I mean, so I know that this show does not have the budget that the Lord of the Rings is going to have. Right. Like, what was it? That it was like billions. <clears throat> was it like billions of dollars that Lord of the I think Rings? It's at least a billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah, I think it has like one of the biggest budgets of all time. Uh, and so, uh, Will of Time did not have remotely cl- close to that budget, and it still yet looks visually stunning. So that really excites me for uh, Amazon's Lord of the Rings, what it's going to look like, um, because I don't think that Will of Time is going to compare visually 
to what Lord of the Rings is going to be. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know that. But just with the budget that I know that it has, it really excites me to see what they're going to pull off for Lord of the Rings. But um, acting so far has been really good. Um, I'll focus on the positives right now. Um, so visually stunning. Uh, sets look great. Great. Um, the... Uh, Acting has been really good so far. Um, I have to see what it looks like uh, plot-wise whenever the series, the season, you know, finishes up. But um, those are some of the positives I, that I saw. I don't know any quick. I know that you haven't got to see it, but was there anything that you saw that you thought was interesting? Um, sort of the overlaps you see of with uh, Lord of the Rings, like yeah. the scene where we, it was like basically. The recreation of the Strider moment you see in right. Fellowship, yeah, yeah. Whenever he kind of he's in uh, goes into the prancing pony and you know that kind of thing, you see that with uh, with one of the Aes Sedai in there. I don't want to ruin too much of it for you guys. Uh, you guys need to go and watch it on Amazon Prime, but you could definitely see like little nods to like Lord of the Rings in it. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, but so now we'll get into the negative parts of it, and some of it's not negative. Some of it's just. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how I'd say it. But one of the negatives, and this isn't necessarily a negative, um, but it's more of a fear, I guess, is what I want to say. So Robert Jordan, um, he he crafted um, the Wheel of Time series uh, being influenced by Tolkien. And one of the major criticisms lodged against Tolkien is that women do not have a big role in Middle Earth. Right. Which I think is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Like beyond ridiculous. Galadriel is like one of the most powerful right. figures in Middle Earth. She basically um casts Sauron to the void single handedly. I mean, three of the most virtuous, powerful figures you're inter- introduced to in Lord of the Rings is Arwen, Eowyn, and Galadriel right, right off the bat. Yeah. Right. So and that's not even counting you know, people outside of just the the trilogy. Like whenever right. you get into the to the rest of the legendarium, there are tons of other female figures who are, play a very important. I role. mean, some of the Valar are even female. Yeah. That's what I was about to get into. Um, you know, that's not even counting like the story with Baron, Baron and Luthien, and you know things like that. But anyway, um, so I, I think that that criticism is just. <laughs> I just don't take that it's criticism. Garbage. Yeah, I just That's don't take, I don't take that criticism very seriously. But um but anyway, Robert Jordan heard that and so what he wanted to do was he wanted to in his eyes fix that perceived problem. So you have characters like the Aes Sedai in there and they're they're women, right? Which I don't have a problem with. But my fear is this. After watching the couple episodes that I've seen so far, I'm afraid that they're going to use that as a is a, a way to maybe sneak in like some type of you know feministic agenda. Yeah. No, I, I I haven't seen them do it yet. I'll say <clears> that. Um, so one of the things that you typically see in those types of movies, and, and one of the worst examples of it is Ghostbusters, the reboot. Oh gosh! Don't oh, get me started on that. Good night. Um, one of the worst examples of this is the Ghostbusters, the new Ghostbusters, not the newest one, uh, Afterlife, not right. that one, but the one before that. With the all-female cast. So, I'm not against female casts, all that. Um, what I'm against is is uh, building the women up to the degradation of the men, right? Right. So, you see that a lot. Like, So, for example, in the new Ghostbusters movie, um, Answer the Call, you have like this all-female cast, 
and they make Chris Hemsworth just look like that's a, exactly what I was about to bring a up. Blundering idiot, right, right, and it's the same thing. Like, like even, some kind of office stooge that's just stumbling around in there. Even like whenever they bring Bill Murray in for a cameo in it, um, he's just a blundering fool. You right. know what I mean? It's like the uh, it's like the Simpsons, right? Like like Homer Simpson is a is a dummy, right? And that's typically what you see with a lot of this type of stuff that's trying to kind of sneak in this agenda it really builds up the women which i think is a, a good thing like uh, ward was here earlier and he's like you know women fight right <laughs> whatever <laughs> we're watching it um you know which is a good thing um but I, i'm just I'm, I'm just hoping that they don't um i'm hoping that they don't like degrade the men you know what i mean i'm hoping that um the women are portrayed in a virtuous way and that the men are portrayed as virtuous as well. So uh, right. so it's not really a complaint. That's just a fear that I have. I right. mean, it's almost kind of sneaky, almost sinister to to mask some of these kind of hidden agendas behind some really great cinematography. Like, that's a huge fear that I have for the Lord of the Rings series well, <clears throat> coming I'll, from Amazon. Well, I'll, I'll take I'll, – I'll say this, too. One of the, the only negative that I have to say so far – so that was the fear that I have. I, I'm, I'm hoping that they don't do that. Um because I don't think that Robert Jordan really does that in Will of Time. What little bit that I've read, I've not, I've not read the whole series because it is massive. Like it would literally take me like one of these entire shelves to fit the whole series in. Like the books are dense and there's a lot of them. Um, so he didn't even finish it um, before he died. You know, Brandon Sanderson had to finish it for him. But anyway, um, so he doesn't really do that. You know, men and women both are virtuous in in his world that he builds. So I'm hoping that that's the show sticks to that um i'm fearful in some ways but the only negative that i have to say so far is that i'm hoping that they don't go the game of thrones route and i i've not watched a lot of games of Th game of thrones i've only seen like one episode uh one and a half maybe yeah, i don't think i've watched two full ones but um i know that it's like notorious for like you know sex scenes nudity that kind of stuff right and uh, robert jordan was a christian he was an anglican and um in one of the scenes right off the bat um, in the first episode is one of the Aes dies and it's like, uh, you know, they get in like this big tub together and like it's, it doesn't show nudity, but it's like as close as you can get. Yeah. And I'm just like, please, like, don't let this be a foreshadowing of, of what's to come. So I can't totally level that as a big time complaint yet because the series hasn't unfolded yet. But that's my fear is like, I'm afraid that they're going to go like the game of Thrones route. I know that they had some folks, I think uh, who worked on game of Thrones kind of consult with this in some ways. So um, oh, yeah, I read that in that article. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really hoping that they don't go that route. Even um, with some of the cast and crew they shared with the Lord of the Rings series. Yeah. Some of the game of Thrones writers are on set. Yeah. So, in some ways, though, I'll say this. It's kind of made me uh, hopeful for Lord of the Rings in some ways because, like I said, um, I think as of right now, the, the pros outweigh the cons from what I've seen. Now, that may change by the end of the series. But um, visually, it's stunning. It truly is beautiful. Um, the acting is, is very good so far. Um, so it makes me really hopeful for what's going to happen with Lord of the Rings on Amazon. I think that it's it's got a lot of potential after I've seen Will of Time. Well, what little bit I've seen so far. So, um, so I don't know. You know, maybe whenever Will of Time finishes up, maybe we'll revisit it and and check out the entire series. That way, that Richie's got time to to check it out on Prime and all that. But so far, so good. Um, we'll see. We'll see what's going on. I just I just really hoping they don't 
slip in the whole feminist agenda and degrade men and that they don't bring in the Game of Thrones type sex scenes and nudity. I just really Given hope that they don't. the production history at Amazon, yeah. um, I have a fear that it's coming. Yeah, that's that's kind of my fear as well. I'm, I'm really hoping that they just don't go that route. But we'll see what happens, I guess. And at the end of the day, it's something that's outside of our control and that we can't really uh, do anything about. So I guess we'll see what happens. So, But I'll say this too. I also last week got to watch a movie that I really enjoyed. And that was Marvel's Shang-Chi. So I don't think you've got to see anything about it. I've seen the tiniest bit of it. Yeah. It really uh, kind of opened me to having a larger conversation for some things that I noticed in it. So I'll kind of give you... Uh, Shang-Chi's been out for a little while now. Yeah. Right? Like Mar- like Eternals has been out you know, now since that. Um, Spider-Man's about to come out here on Christmas. So if you've not seen Shang-Chi yet... Warning, some spoilers. Um, you've had time to see it by now. <laughs> you've had time. You've had time to see it. Um, so it's it's very uh, – I'll say – let me let me first preface this by saying this. I am not a, uh, a scholar on uh, Eastern symbolism and things like that. All I know is that I, the, the world of the Bible is the world that I, I swim in, right? In biblical scholarship, that world is where I spend my time at. So, um, so the overlaps that I'm going to talk about come from that worldview, right? Not somebody who's in in uh, incarnated in an Eastern worldview. So, uh, I may get some of this stuff wrong, but I think it'll open up to a large conversation. I don't think that I get this stuff wrong. I've I've looked into it a little bit to I think know what I'm talking about with, with some of it. But um, so anyway, uh, that's a preface. You'll see what I'm talking about when I get to it. Um, so, with Shang Chi, it's kind of uh, it's kind of like this. You so you've got these kids who belong to this powerful family. The father has been who's been alive for decades, or not decades, but but generations, uh, and he's the holder of the the rings, the ten rings, right? Which is what the movie is centered uh, around, and they give him like. Uh, special powers like in some cultures he's like revered as like a god and a, like kings and you know that kind of thing so really interesting so anyway um, as he's like kind of going forth and conquering the world he stumbles into this secret Edenic like forest and he meets a very he meets a beautiful woman there and they begin to fight with one another and this is the only person that he's never been able to conquer and so what do you do with the person that you can't conquer? You marry them. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, so they get married, and they have children. And so, uh, you know, as the plot goes along, you learn that she has to leave that place um, whenever she marries him, and she has to, like, give her powers up, and, you know, that kind of thing. But they have two children, uh, one whose name is Shang-Chi and his, uh, his sister. So what happens is um, the father, since he's this power seeker, right? Um, classic Ring of Power stuff. Um, he uh, he's involved in a lot of sketchy deals. You know, he's kind of like this uh, powerful figure. Uh, anyway, what happens is uh, this group of men come to where they're living, and they murder his wife, which sets him back on he basically he, he had taken the rings off during that time too so he had finally started to age and stuff like that and so after she's she's uh she's murdered 
he puts the rings back on and he's like consumed with power and revenge and you know all those types of things and so he begins training uh the children to be warriors and uh like shang is is uh trained to uh murder the person who murdered his mother so anyway what happens is to make a long story short uh he runs away and comes to america and whenever he runs away his sister a short time afterwards she runs away as well so what the majority of the movie is is him his father sending like his henchmen after them to bring them back to him because he's uh what he's going to do is (laughs) he uh he's being afflicted by this voice that is um pretending to be his wife and so in the the place that she used to live there's like this gate in this mountain right and this there's uh, these evil spirits have been kept behind this gate in this mountain. And this voice has told him that um, she has, her spirit has been kept there as well with those evil spirits. And the reason why is because she, uh, she the, the spirit tells her it's a uh, form of punishment, right? Um, she left the, the village, the Edenic-like village, right. and it's, it's a type of punishment. And so he's bound and determined to go and to find this place again and to set her free. And he's going to use his children as a means for helping him accomplish that. So anyway, um, he basically hunts the kids down and they find out his plan. And so uh, they find out that he's going to destroy the place where their mother was raised. And, and so they're, they're going to go there uh, before him. It's this hidden place that you can only access during certain times you know that kind of thing um and fi- so they, they they end up making their way there and uh it's interesting whenever they get there they come across some some uh interesting animals that are kind of like guardians like uh it's in in chinese culture they're called guardian lions and so like if you've ever seen like uh pictures of like the forbidden city like there's like temples there they're like uh these lions that stand guard they're like very uh they're like lions mixed with dogs kind of mixed with people like very muscular people right yeah and they're guarding the way to these sacred places right and so this city is being guarded by these sacred i'll go ahead and say it cherubim <laughs> like like uh figures give away the angle here yeah give away the angle here um so they go and they get there and then you know father gets there and they end up fighting against each other and it's really interesting because um there's a uh it's very hero's journey you know shang has a death moment and the death moment comes he's fighting his father and his father you know unloads the rings on him and whenever it unloads the rings on him casts him down into this like sacred body of water and so it's like uh, a death he dies in water right below the below the earth which is corresponds to baptism obviously that's what baptism is it's a it's a ritual death right you paul says in romans uh romans 5 i believe it is or maybe it's romans 6 now i have to go back and look that you know you were buried with christ in a baptism like his like you're buried you're 
you've died with them, that kind of language. So Shang dies in this water. And whenever he dies in there, this guardian, uh, it's, a, it's a dragon, um, kind of, uh, you know, comes up with him and helps him fight, you know, that entire thing. Just really interesting there that, uh, like in Eastern culture, the dragon is very much like the serpent in a lot of right, other places. Yeah. You know, like in the biblical scheme of symbolism, it's a bad, it's, it's evil, like deceptive. But in uh, the Chinese and Eastern stuff, it's it's good. It's like an inversion, you know what I mean? Uh, it's like it in the Native American lore as well. But anyway, so make a long story short, though. You know, he fights his dad. Then they end up teaming up again. He, so his dad lets the spirits out because he's been deceived and fooled. And then they come out, and so they end up having a fight together. His dad lays down his life. He sacrifices himself for his son, and then he becomes the new holder of the rings. And Anyway, um, I basically tell the story to get to this story, which is that I was intrigued by the, the symbolism of the Guardians, of the Guardian lines. And the reason why is because I begin to, to realize and to, uh, to research, and I've, I've realized that every culture in the world has these figures in their mythology. Like in the biblical worldview, what is it that you have guarding holy places? Cherubim, right? I mean, like, what? Ha- what is it? So God kicks Adam and Eve out of the sacred, <laughs> sacred mountain garden, right? What's he put to guard the way? A cherubim with a flaming sword. Yep. Like in this movie, you have this sacred forest, right? That's hard to find. And what's guarding the way? These guardian lines you know even in you know surrounding ancient near eastern cultures you have the same equivalent in in all of those so think about the egyptian culture what do you have there you have the sphinx it blows my mind in some ways that people just cannot unravel the mystery of the the deep mystery of the sphinx it's not that hard or complicated to find out um We've talked about this before. Um, the pyramids are holy mountains, like Eden. Eden's a holy mountain, and God puts what to guard the way to it? A, a cherubim, right? Well, it's the same thing. Ziggurats and pyramids are holy mountains, man-made holy mountains. And what's the, and if you look at pictures uh, in Egypt, there's something guarding the way to them. It's the first thing you see in the pictures. What's guarding the way? It's the Sphinx. It's the Sphinx. And it's even interesting that... All of these figures are described as being polyvalent, polyvalent. Like they're part this, part this, part this, and part that. Like the guardian line. It's like part man, part lion, part dog, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. The cherubim, right? It's it's like part lion, you know, part part this, part that, part man, you know, all of that. And it's the same thing with the Sphinx. It's like part lion, part part man. Like you have these polyvalent figures guarding sacred spaces and that's what it is i mean that's what the pyramids are you've got three holy mountains there and the the sphinx is guarding the way to it it's the same exact thing with the seraphim that's guarding the way back to the holy mountain of eden and it's the same thing even in israel's temple right israel's temple is a microcosm of eden right you go before whenever you get to the holy of holies there's something guarding the way on the veil what's what's guarding the way it's cherubim embroidered on right. the thing, and you get in there and you see the uh, you know the Ark of the Covenant. 
What's guarding the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the place where God's going to, in his theophonic gl- glory cloud, going to come? It's two cherubim, right? So, um, so anyway, so I noticed this theme that all of these cultures have these, um, you could call them uh, cultural guardians or, or sacred space guardians. And, you know, if you go and Google, like, uh, China, you know, they've got temples as well, right? They're, they look Chinese, you know, and Asian compared to, you know, the Middle Easterns, but they're basically doing the same thing, like the Forbidden City in China. They've got these lines, guardian lines all over them. So I begin to realize that every culture has these cherubim figures. So that, in my mind, began to turn a little bit, and Ward was in the group that we're in, and, and I asked the question, I was like, you know, seeing this pattern, it makes me wonder, where are the, what are the cherubim of our culture today? I'm just going to leave that as an open question. Like, you guys, you guys who are listening, you can chime in on that. But right. we all, in every culture, you have something that is guarding sacred space, right? You have it, I mean, you have it in the East, you have it in the Middle East, you've got it in other cultures around the world too. You have something that's guarding the way to what is sacred. So my question is, was what, what, what are our cherubims, cherubim or sphinxes or guardian, whatever you want to call them, what are they in our culture and what are they guarding? Or do we just not have them anymore because we don't have anything sacred anymore? Right. You know, whenever I start, like, started thinking about it, I thought, you know, I can't, can't identify Anything yeah, like that's that. something the other day when you asked the question in the group chat that I was sitting and thinking about, and I couldn't come up with anything. Yeah. Well, you know, the only thing that I, I mean, can, I could speculate at things, but... That's nothing. the best that I could do was yeah. speculate with things. Um, the best that I could do is speculate that the eagle is type of a cherubim because in one hand he's got, uh, a f- you know, it's a, what was it? Was it, it wasn't a fig leaf, was it? I think it's an olive branch and then arrows. It's an olive branch in one hand, and his head is turned towards the uh, symbolically uh, turned to the foot that has the olive branch, because an olive branch is a symbol for peace. Right. Right. So he's favoring peace, but in the other hand, he has arrows, which means that he's willing prepared for war. He's prepared for war. Um, That's the closest that I could get. But at the same time, that symbol is not polyvalent. You know what I mean? Like it's not. Um, I mean, in some way it is because it's got the arrows and the, you know, that kind of thing, but it's not quite uh, like these figures, right? Like, it's not like half eagle, half man, you know, that kind of thing. So. Yeah, but the United States is such a big cultural melting pot anyway, so it's hard to have any anything that's really distinctly American. Yeah. I guess the closest was the eagle at one point, but, right. you know, liberty is not sacred to everyone anymore, you know? Um, so anyway. Yeah, so, so break in, up these uh, these individual cultures that came that's came to this land and settled and look at their you know maybe that's why we don't have that anymore. Right. It's because we're a culture that has been it's it's fractured now. Like maybe that's where you don't see those in cultures that don't have anything sacred because they don't have anything unifying them anymore. I don't know. That's just off the top of my right. Head. I mean, it's that's almost the theme when you come here. You're you know just expected to kind of drop your ties to your your previous nationality and. People just kind of abandon their cultural leanings and just embrace this thing that is modernism in America. Yeah, and we have no nothing. Even you know, in American culture today, we don't have some kind of cohesive uh, 
logos, like a ordering principle that orders people together, right? Um, like we've abandoned that. And so maybe it's fitting that we don't have guardians um, because we don't have anything sacred anymore. Right. You know, but uh, if there's a high culture that comes after us, then I'm sure that they will. Um, but anyway, I, I just leave that as an opening question. You guys can uh, chime in on that. <laughs> what do you like? What do you think? Like, do you think that that's an accurate assessment? Do you think that the reason why we don't have them anymore is because we don't have anything sacred? Or do you think that we do and we're just kind of blind to them and don't see them? Like, they're so ingrained in our culture that we're almost blind to them. Let us know what you think on that. I don't know if you had something else you want to say. About I mean, that. let's if you want to talk about uh, the Americans before European settlers, we could take it back to Native American culture and their burial mounds and their yeah sort of their representations of those things. Yeah, that's probably the closest that I could get Right, is that. Like and the Thunderbird, the mm-hmm. River Serpent, things yep. like that. Yeah, they definitely have it in their culture. And, like, even with those, I mean, those those characters are kind of polyvalent, you know, in some ways. So that's probably the closest that I can see to it. So anyway, Ward, Ward was like, huh, I'm going to be thinking about that, you know, whenever <laughs> whenever I dropped it in the our thread this week and was talking about it. So um Anyway, well, we've got a little bit of time left. We're coming in at 40 minutes now, so I guess. What, so I dropped this on our thread, too, and uh, it's something that I've been studying. Um, dang it, I don't have uh, – I didn't bring my book in here with me. Um, I'll see if I can bring it up here real quick. Uh, oh, boy, what book was it? Oh, it was from uh, <coughs> Michael Heiser's uh, Unseen Realm. Oh. Um, so there was a uh, – a uh, page there that talked about um, a group called uh, the Opkalu. And um, I was just kind of rereading through it and just, you know, looking for some things that I'd missed the first time around, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, one of them was uh, the Opkalu and how exactly what they were and you know, that kind of thing, and how they relate to the biblical story. And uh, so it's really, really fascinating because he's talking about uh, ancient Near Eastern mythology and uh, what the Opkalu is. So uh, to kind of start us off, so in like Babylonian culture, there was this group called the Opkalu. And basically what the Opkalu were, were they were these uh, cultural heroes. Um, And basically what they did... um, was they were the city, the city starters, right? Culture builders, that kind of thing, um, and they're depicted in, in some ways as giants as well. Um, so anyway, um, so I was, you know, digging into some of the stuff that Heiser was talking about, and uh, he, he, uh, uh, yeah, I'm starting to get into it now, finding it here on our thread. So, um, so they're part, they're in, in Babylonian myth, they're depicted as being part human and part divine so they're very much like the nephilim of genesis chapter exactly. six and yeah. it's so fascinating um so they're cultural culture builders right they're the, the men of renown that kind of thing and um in babylonian culture what you had was they assisted kings so uh you had they were called sages in in that culture right so you had uh the kings and then you had the sages who assisted them and so, um, so in the Babylonian myth, uh, there's actually Upkalu. So it's divided up into two parts. It's like 
antediluvian and like post-diluvian, which is before the flood and after the flood, right? And so in Babylonian culture, that's how they split kind of their history. And uh, so it's interesting because in their myth, there are Apkalu who survived the flood, that which Gilgamesh is this hero of. But anyway, um, and so what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to s- survive the flood and uh, continue to bring this pre-flood secret knowledge that they founded right. their cultures on, right? And um, so uh, there's a list out there that I found. Um, there's actually a list of Babylonian kings and uh, the name of their Apkalu uh, who assisted them. It's so, so interesting because as I was diving into it, I actually found that Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel was in it, and he had an Apkalu. Um, so anyway, so here's, here's, uh, I'll, I'll maybe just drop that in the image of that in on Patreon, but you know, here's kind of the way that it's divided up. You've got, um, it's called the Uruk list of Kings and sages. Um, it's from 165 BC. So about 165 years before Christ. Um, it was discovered in 59, uh, in 60, 1959 and 60. Um, during the uh, during a s- certain era, but anyway, um, so the list consists of seven kings and their Apkalu, and then there's a note on the deluge that separates them, and then after that, there's uh, eight more kings and their Apkalu pair. So you've got what uh, a king named Alayu and his uh, and Adapa was his Apkalu. Then you have Alagar and Uduga as his uh, his Apkalu. You have another one named uh, Emulana and and Megdu as his uh, Apkalu. Then you have Amingala and a very similar name, Amingala as well. Uh, then you've got a couple of these names I just can't even remotely pronounce. But anyway. Yeah, just not willing to yeah, butcher the names today. Yeah, so <coughs> anyway. But then you've got the Gilgamesh flood that happens. And then after that, you have the reign of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh becomes king. And then Sil, uh, Sinleke Anuni becomes his uh, Apkalu, or scholar, is what it says. Now, I'll get into that here in a minute, why there's a little bit of a difference there between sage and scholar. Um, then you, after Gilgamesh, you have Ibu-Sin, who becomes king, and then uh, Kabti-el-Marduk who becomes his Apkalu. Then you have Ispi-era and um, a person named Sidu, who becomes his Apkalu. Then you have uh, Abi-ishu and then Gilmogula and Takis-gula, who are his scholars. So I'm assuming those were probably brothers. Then you have a reign of an unknown king uh, with an Apkalu named Esagil ken Apli. Then you have uh, the reign of a named king named Adad Apla Indina, and who had uh, es, uh, Esalgal Ken Uba was his Apkalu. And then here's where it gets interesting. The seventh king after that is Nebuchadnezzar from the Daniel's, the Daniel's uh, writings, and the same Apkalu is there. So it's so fascinating. And here's why I found it to be fascinating because Daniel becomes elevated. Over the sages, right in in the book, right. He has so much wisdom and knowledge that he's exalted, basically, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar's right hand man. 
over his over this upkalu. Like he's he's smarter and more and has more wisdom than the his diviners and his sages and the astronomers and all of exactly, that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And um, it's fascinating. Um, and here's why. It's because the knowledge that Daniel has is actual pre-flood knowledge. And the stuff that they, they have is not. And here's how that, that works. So the biblical story is basically sitting this straight. And so in Babylonian myth, you have Apkalu, these half-divine, half-human people who survived the flood. And they, they're culture builders, right? And so what's interesting is that's the thing that the Bible's sitting right. So in Genesis 6, you have the Nephilim, who are described as what? Quasi-divine, half-human, half, half that. But they are the product of fallen angels. They're not pictured as virtuous, right? And it's interesting because it ascribes to them the titles that the Babylonian ascribed to them, right? The, the, they, these are the mighty, this is a, the mighty men of renown, right? The, uh, the men of old, that the culture heroes, the culture builders that everybody uh, gives uh, veneration to. But basically what it's saying is the knowledge that they have and that they're passing on isn't wisdom. It's the knowledge of the watchers. Right. Yeah. Right from, from Enoch 6, 7, and 8. Like the knowledge of, of astronomy and ast- astrology uh, uh, and uh, enchantments and all of that stuff. And so basically uh, what's going on there is this is what God destroys in the flood. And it's the text is clear to say that no one survives it. The only people who survives it is Noah, not Gilgamesh, Noah, right? And so it's interesting because whenever you dig deep enough into uh, the Babylonian myth, they kind of have this thing in there where they say, well, you know, the the Apkalu after the flood aren't exactly the same as the Apkalu from before the flood. So they they, uh, end up getting the name Umanu instead of Apkalu after the flood. And they begin to say that the Apkalu after the flood aren't exactly half divine, half human like they were before. Now they're just human and they're called among you. So that's why you see in the king's list why some are called sages and the others are called scholars. Right. Um, yeah. So it's just interesting because basically the uh, it kind of just frames the flood a little bit differently. It's, it's this uh, – there's also this thing going on there with, with knowledge like knowledge, antediluvian knowledge, secret knowledge kind of deal. Um, so the Babylonians are saying, ooh, we have this secret knowledge that's been preserved through the Apkalu, right? And the biblical story is saying, no, they were wiped out in the flood. This knowledge is, is gone. Um, and if you want pre-flood knowledge, it's not some kind of secret knowledge out there. It's, uh, it's available to anyone who will turn to the God of Israel. And so it's just so fascinating what's going on with this story. Like whenever you read into the ancient Near Eastern uh, background that's of what's going on there. So that's something I've been reading about this past week. Um, yeah, so I don't know if you got anything you want to say about that. But. No, you just act like that's just light reading. Like that's, Josh, <laughs> that's Josh's light reading list. Yeah. That's uh, you're like, yeah, I just I was just reading up on some uh, Babylonian mythology, yeah, and just casual <laughs> weekend reading, you know. Yeah, um, but just really, really interesting stuff. So that that all come from that Michael Heiser uh, quote where he's basically talking about this. I'll I'll have to find it and and uh, 
I brought it with me, but I left it in there in the, the other room. Uh, but yeah, just really fascinating stuff. It's, uh, it's basically, it basically goes to reinforce a lot of what we have said about uh, paganism basically being fanfic. Right? Right. Like, it's this claim to having pre-fall or uh, pre, pre-flood knowledge, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, if you want that true knowledge, it's not some kind of secret knowledge that you've got to go to the pagan world to find. It's available. Uh, to any who would turn to the one true God of Israel, uh, the one true God, which is the God of Israel. And uh, so anyway, just really fascinating things. I'm always learning, always reading. Um, yeah, just really super interesting. I've got a lot more stuff that I could say about some casual reading I did in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, just, uh, yeah, <laughs> just, just casual past- reading of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, man, I, this is the way that I do things. You know, for most people, like it seems, I, I just, I pick one thing like that, like the de- like right now I'm reading through the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. And my goal was to read through a document in it a day. Like I, I bought it at like books I think books a million in Charleston. Um, which is, you know, if you those of you listening, that's just our local books a million in Charleston. Um, they had a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls incomplete. It was complete Dead Sea Scrolls in English. I'm like, yeah, I need that. Um it's like if you go to a Books a Million, they'll have a biblical section that's got like a scholarly section and you yeah. should be able to find it there if not you can buy it on amazon for really cheap um but my goal is i, I pick books like that and just a chapter a day or a document a day in them. and that's one way that i just continually uh put myself into a position to learn and to grow and to that kind of thing it doesn't have like you don't have to go out and buy logos you know the latest version <laughs> right, of logos yeah. and you know pay a bunch of money man it can be something as simple as buying the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and reading a document a day in it, just setting aside that time in the morning or, or in the evening or whenever you do it. Or or buying, uh, you know, buying a book like, you know, Mike Heiser's Unseen Realm and reading a chapter a day and checking out the footnotes in it. Like, right. if you would just check out the footnotes in it, a lot of that information um, is there in the footnotes, or he's at least directing you to sources that will talk about it. Like, if you see, like uh, like the section that I was talking about, there's a footnote there. And he directs you to people who talk about it. Just pick up the book that he's he's directing you towards and just a chapter a day. That's all. You don't have to read it all at one time, you know. And even so, like sometimes you might just have to read the chapter over and over again. Like spend two or three days reading the same chapter over to make sure you digest it all. Like it's not a, it's not a race, you know. So that's the way that I do things. Um, I could talk a lot more about the way that I do things. <laughs> I have a whole system on how I do things, but. I won't go into that. Josh is the resident librarian here. Pretty much, I I literally have a categorization system. Dude, you do. I have you really. I do. have a note card system that whenever I'm reading a book, here's what I do. I have a note card system. I stole this from a guy named Robert uh, Ryan Holiday, who stole it from another guy named Robert Green. Um, and R- Ryan Holiday is the guy who talks about stoicism out there today. He's the big guy. He's talking about it, but at a pop level. But anyway. So basically what I do is this. Every book that I read and whatever I underline or uh, put a star beside, it's something I want to write down and put in this uh, system that I've created. So I've got, if you've ever seen like those big files of note cards, I have those. And they're lined up and categorized by themes and topics, that kind of thing. And so what I'll do is whatever quote that I underline, I'll write by hand in the note card system and file it in them. And so if you ever ask me, like, how is it you remember just these random things? It's because I've wrote a lot of them down. I've underlined a lot of them, 
and then I've wrote them out by hand, you know. So that's how a lot of it gets in there. Um, but that way that I, I can always go back and find the quotes and not have to go through the whole book, you know. I, and I've got it in there with similar quotes from other authors. So anyway, I could share. I, there's a whole video out there that Ryan Holiday kind of talks about some of that. I, I could share that sometime and if anybody's interested in that. But anyway, that's all that I got <laughs> on today's chinwag, so. Been a pretty interesting chinwag, I think. Yeah, uh, lot. It's been all over the place. All over the place. Well, that's what these are. That's what these are for. These are like casual conversations between us. Where exactly. We just talk about what, like there is no rhyme or reason to it. Like we just talk about whatever we want to on chinwag. We don't have to, you know, feel just like things we're digging into at the time. Things, things like that. That's exactly right. Things we're digging into. Things we're interested in, and it gives you guys an opportunity to kind of. Uh, Listen to what we're we're into, and uh, you know maybe check into some of it for yourselves. So, or to comment on some of it. So, all right, Richie, we're coming in at an hour. You got anything else that you want to say? I'm gonna go d- film some stuff with Ward, and uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, that project, we're always uh, adding something to that project. <laughs> so, always, yeah. So, um, should be interesting, and um, yeah. Uh, so. Well, I guess since we're going to go ahead and sign off, I'll go ahead and say this. Um, head on over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash Sword and Staff Order. You can get the Sword and Staff Uncut for just $5 a month. And whenever you do that, you get exclusive bonus content that you're not going to get anywhere else. Like the stuff that Richie's going to drop. I'm going to be dropping a, the second chapter of my book here at some point. I was supposed to drop it last week, but never got around to it because it was just such a busy week. Um, you get that kind of stuff. You also get... Um, all types of content that we just don't post in other places. It really, there really is a lot of unique and exclusive content that we give to our patrons that nobody else gets. So if you're into that, and if you want episodes sooner, and if you're wanting the uncut editions of our podcast, you need to go and sign up for the Sword and Staff Uncut. And so um, we'll be back next week with a full episode. I think that we were talking about doing an episode on the church calendar or something like that. Yeah, so if you guys have ever been interested in the church calendar, we've talked about it a lot. We've had a lot of requests for understanding the church calendar, so probably put together one on that. And then we're going to get into a bunch of Christmas stuff for Christmas. I know that we're going to probably do an episode on Is Christmas Pagan? Um, which is a hot topic, just like Is Halloween Pagan? Uh, And I'll I'll go ahead and say this. (sighs) Christmas is not pagan. And actually, um, Christmas has been celebrated. Like, I'll say this. Christmas is so uncontroversially not pagan. Like, I don't even see how this conversation even goes on. Like, like it, it was literally practiced for hundreds of years before things like Saturnalia. And, like, probably, Yule. yeah, probably even thousands of years before Yule. Which is fascinating. The, you know the the earth, oh gosh, I'm giving away so much already. But <laughs> I'll say this. I'll say right that, now. You know, like the the earliest reference to Yule we have is like from like the 1400s, which is like over a thousand years before the earliest reference we have for Christmas. Pe- Christians were celebrating Christmas all the way back in the 200s. Right. That's a long time before Yule. Well, so, Yule was just. Uh, a pagan reference to an earlier winter festival that mm. they really had no name or history for. Yeah. Um, I was reading and a lot of some of the scholars that I think, um, 
you know, a lot of people try to say that, that Christians stole Yule and, you know, that kind of thing. But actually, from what I've researched, it seems like the opposite is true. It seems like that the the, uh, the pagans actually created Yuletide as a type of uh, inversion of Christmastide. And so, you know, anyway, I'm not going to spoil all that. We'll save it for one of our episodes of December. Um Hope you guys are looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. And so, uh, Richie, you got anything to say before we sign off? Um, the website will be up eventually. <laughs> I totally forgot. I know about we've it. mentioned it past two episodes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We we're working on a website. We've got a little bit of it uh, finished up, and so hopefully by the the, the new year, it it'll be up. Hopefully, uh, I know Richie wants it up like tomorrow. <laughs> Richie wants it up like yesterday. Yeah. So hopefully. Uh, Hopefully we have it up by the new year. That way we can start the new year off fresh with a with a website that can kind of serve as the hub for Sword and Staff where you can find all this content. And, uh, yeah, that's that should be good. All right. Well, Richie, if you don't have anything else, then I don't either. Um, a lot of exclusive videos, things coming to our YouTube channel. Richie has so much. Richie, oh, Richie always <laughs> has so much. Richie, I'm going to unleash you on the people. We've had people begging me to. I'm like the dam that is holding back the flood wall of Richie that is going to wipe out the town. Dude, I don't think these people are ready for that, though. <laughs> Richie, I'm going to give you one shot. Do you want to say anything sketchy before we head off here? No, not right now. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Well, guys, uh, all jokes aside, um, next time, next time, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shut Richie down anymore. I'm, not, I'm just gonna let you go. <laughs> I'm just gonna let you go on these people, and whatever comes out, comes out. So they yeah, asked, they're, they're gonna see firsthand why the dam is needed. <laughs> they asked, they asked for it. So that's what, that's what the people want. So we'll give it to them. So anyway, all jokes aside, um, but anyway, guys, we hope you have a, a good Thanksgiving, and uh, from our families to yours. We hope that it's well. Uh, we hope that everything is blessed. And uh, we'll see you guys after Thanksgiving. See you then. See you.